We read scripture from 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We read this chapter in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 8, which introduces the doctrine of the Trinity. We hear the inspired, infallible Word of God. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, I do not say, that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God. And that the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. May God... God apply his word to our hearts. In connection with that passage, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 8. In the back of our Psalters on page 6, 
question and answer 24 and 25. How are these articles divided? Into three parts. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second of God the Son and our redemption. The third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Beloved our Lord Jesus Christ, we now begin our treatment of the twelve articles of the Apostles' Creed. A creed or a confession is an expression of what the church believes to be the truth of God's Word. Confessions are expressions of the church, not just individuals, written often by individuals, but it's that which the church adopts, professing that the Holy Spirit has led the church into an understanding of what the Scriptures teach. Without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, there would be no confessions. A faithful confession, then, is based on God's Word and is very valuable for the church as it indicates the way in which the Spirit has led the church throughout the ages into a more complete and full understanding of God's Word. The confession of the church must be taught. The confession of the church must be preserved. And so God makes use of those confessions then as teaching tools so that we can teach them to our children so that they can be taught to those who desire to join the church. And in that way, serve then as important ways in which the witness of the Scriptures are clearly made known. Now, the confession that we're going to spend the next week's, Lord willing, studying was adopted by the church in the 6th or 7th century. It was not written by the apostles, even though it's called the Apostles' Creed. The apostles wrote the inspired Scriptures. They were busy being used by the Holy Spirit to write the Word of God. Some claim each article was written by one of the apostles, seeing as there's 12 articles in the Apostles' Creed. But such is not the case. This was adopted and written by the church in connection with the baptism formula. They would baptize, as we continue to do today, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this confession briefly was written in such a way that it would take that as an outline. God the Father... God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Expanding a bit on each aspect of that confession. And so on that basis, now the Heidelberg Catechism addresses the Trinity. Even though there's no specific article of the Creed that identifies the Trinity, the whole of the confession is based on the Trinity. The Trinity, as we know, is a profound mystery God reveals it. He makes it known to us as a precious doctrine. And yet, concerning it, we confess, we can never fully comprehend the greatness of the glory of our God. And God sets before us the revelation concerning His greatness so that we worship Him, so that we adore Him, so that we acknowledge that Jehovah God is God alone. He stands distinct, separate from the whole of the creation from every other idol that men might conceive of, from every creature. We see the glory, the greatness of our God as He's three persons 
in one being. And we experience the marvelous wonder of the life of the Trinity as God takes us into that divine life, making us partakers of the divine nature and working in us so that we reflect that life as his children. And so we look at the covenant and connection with the Trinity and how the covenant, that relationship of friendship that we enjoy with God flows out of the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity, then, not a cold doctrine, but a doctrine that is life-giving. A doctrine that provides us with comfort, with hope, and with joy. We look at the Trinity, noting, first of all, the meaning, secondly, the revelation, and finally, our experience of it. Again, it's impossible for us fully to comprehend the greatness of the glory of our God. God is so marvelous. He's so wondrous that our human minds cannot fully wrap themselves around the greatness of the glory of Jehovah God. God Himself, as to His being, is a mystery of all mysteries. The church begins her confession with a simple confession. I believe in God. We make that our confession. Though we can't fully comprehend or understand, we know God because God has revealed Himself to us. And we know Him to be the one whom we love. The church and all individual believers declare God is God. And that's the confession here of 1 John 5. A marvelous confession that God works in the hearts of those who are regenerated. Note that emphasis. Whoever is born again confesses Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. This is the fruit of God's work in us. One who's not regenerated is not going to confess Jesus as Lord. But God, working that wonder within us, brings forth that confession. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. God working the faith by which we believe, Jehovah, He is the God. God cannot be classified or defined. Human logic is not able to reach God. All human proofs for the existence of God, and there are many, fall short. Because still, they can't convince an unbeliever that Jehovah, He alone, is God. God's eternal. He's transcendent, that is, highly exalted above everything of this creation. At the same time, He's imminent. He is everywhere present. He's in the whole of creation very intimately. He's the God of our salvation through Jesus Christ and works through the power of the Spirit. This great glorious God dwells in His church and He establishes everlasting covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Only the believer, again, who has the gift of faith will ever say, I believe in God. Philosophy can't find this great and glorious triune God. Scientists will never come to a conclusion concerning their confession of Jehovah, God, Creator. Natural theology, natural revelation never arrives 
at a knowledge of God. The knowledge of God given us by the Spirit is that which is a wonder. And it's worked by faith. So that the child of God believes that Jesus is the Christ. And he does so as one who's born of God. Now a mystery is something that can never be fully uncovered by human reasoning. It can never be arrived at by speculation. It's something that needs to be made known. It needs to be revealed. And that's the truth concerning the Trinity. We know the triune God only insofar as God has been pleased to reveal himself to us. And as God reveals that truth to us, he does so progressively. He does so through the scriptures. So that what begins in Genesis, continues throughout the Old Testament, into the New, becomes progressively richer and deeper and clearer until we fall down and we worship and we marvel at the infinite majesty and the glory and the greatness of God. This God is our God. And He's a God so distinct from the idols of the heathen. We know that every culture, every people have a history. And they have an understanding and an idea concerning who God is to them. Whether it's the sun, the moon, the stars, whether it's a God of their own imagination that fell from the sky somehow. God stands infinitely more glorious than any imagination, any idol of men. How so? He's living. He's a living God. All the gods of the heathen are dead. He's a God who is self-sufficient. He's not dependent upon anyone for his existence or for his being. Everything that he does is of himself. He is three in one. Everything he does takes place of the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. He's perfect. He's infinite life. He's a God of knowledge, who understands, who hears, who speaks. He lives in love within his own being. He displays that love outside of his being in perfect fellowship and perfect love. In essence, God has everything within himself that he needs. He's completely self-sufficient as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He did not need to create anything outside of his being. He didn't need to create this world. He doesn't need us. He's completely sufficient as infinite, almighty God. And he lives in love, perfect love, as it's displayed within his triune being. Perfect fellowship, perfect communication, having within his own being life. A life by which he knows, he speaks, he confesses, communicates. Now there are three aspects especially with regard to the Trinity. First of all, there's the idea of God's oneness. That he is one God. And that's clearly established in many places in the Bible. Secondly, there's the idea of the threeness of God. That he's not only one, but he's three And then finally, there's the relationship between the oneness and the threeness of God. How do we understand how God is one and three at the same time? First of all, God is one. Our Lord is one Lord. 
Deuteronomy 6 verse 8 establishes God as one. The law makes clear there is one God and He alone is to be worshipped and served. That one being has one mind, one will, one spirit, one life. That there is one God that brings about one life, that brings about death, that brings about everything that takes place in the world is the truth clearly of Scripture. God is one. He has no competition. We do not believe in dualism as though there's God and then there's other forces of evil that are competing and we don't know who's going to win. God alone is sovereign. He alone has all power, all might. As one spiritual being who is the implication of all of his infinite perfections. Simply meaning that his perfections are not they're not against each other. His love is not competing with his hatred or his mercy or his justice, but they're all perfectly united within his one being. God is love, God is righteousness, God is mercy. God is grace. God is the fountain of all good. And we can go on and on and on. He is one. But He's also three. And that's also clearly the teaching of Scripture. We have it set forth here very marvelously in verse 7. There are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Within that one being, there are three persons. And so we make that distinction. One being, three persons. Now a person is an individual. The concept of a person, again, is a marvelous thing. God creates every human person to be very distinct from every other human person. And yet, alike with regard to the same essence that we share. So that even though we are different persons, yet we share humanity. The one species of man is not confused with a species of a tree or a dog or a horse. And yet the marvel of God's majesty is shown in that each individual retains his or her distinct identity. And that distinct identity is their person. Their person makes them different from another person because of that individual's person. But secondly... A person is an individual with a rational, moral mind. Someone who thinks. And so in that regard, a person is distinct from the animal. It's distinct from the creation with regard to the plants and the trees. An animal doesn't have a rational, moral mind, whereas a person does. And so God created man distinct from all of the creation as one who had a person, and within that person, a rational, moral mind. And as such, then, he retains his identity, even though he changes so much through the course of his life. The little baby just born is the same person as the elderly individual who now is on his or her deathbed. So that even though that individual changes so much and grows in understanding and develops with regard to body and mind and education. Nevertheless, the person remains the same. I grow up. I live my life. I die and I enter into everlasting glory. 
Now we conclude then, within the triune God, there are three individual persons, distinct one from another, but yet sharing the same essence. All God, fully God, and yet distinct persons, one from another. Each of them having the ability to say, I, as distinct persons within the Godhead. Now that brings us then, what is the relationship between three persons and the one being? And it's this, that the individual persons possess the fullness of the being of God. So that the Father is 100% God, the Son is 100% God, the Spirit is 100% God. It's not as though we have 30%, 30%, 30%. It's all 100, 100, 100. Each one of them is fully God. And each one of them is of the same essence as the Godhead. All share one mind, one will, one nature. So that the mind of the Father is the mind of the Son, is the mind of the Holy Spirit. All three of them speak the same thing. They think the same thing. They will the same thing as part of the same being, and yet they retain their individual distinction as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we can understand that this was difficult for the early church to wrap their minds around. And as a result, there was a lot of controversy over the Trinity in the early church. The Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedon Creed, reflecting that controversy. And what was especially of controversy was this. With regard to now the second person, Jesus, was, was and is he of the same essence as the Father or of a similar essence as the Father? And that became hotly disputed. Is he of the same identical or is he similar? Athanasius, the early church father, rose up and insisted Jesus is of the same essence as the Father. And so the issue was the word homo. Homo means same. Homo usius, essence. Is Jesus of the homo usius or is he of the homoi usius? Homoi meaning similar. A dispute that raged in the early church. But finally the church councils met and they insisted that the little I had to be removed. It's not homoi, it's homo. And insisted then that Jesus, the second person, is of the same essence as the Father. That each one of them is of the same essence. Now, so challenging this is for our minds to wrap around. But if we think about H2O, we think about the fact that H2O is able to be water, it's able to be Steam, it's able to be a solid. And yet, whether it's solid, whether it's steam, or whether it's water, liquid, it's all of the same essence. That's a creaturely way in which the creation, in a small way, reflects the marvel of this wonder. That we can have one essence, and yet it's displayed in three very distinct personal properties. God... As to his essence, displayed in three distinct persons who have different personal properties, even though they are of the same essence of God. 
How is that distinction seen? In their names. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father generates the Son. The Son is generated by the Father. And the Holy Spirit breathes the Father and the Son. Now, right away in our minds, we think, well, Father has to come first. You can't have a Father and then a Son who have the same age, so to speak. And that's where our finite minds are not able to wrap around the reality that there is no beginning, there is no ending to God. He is everlasting. There is no order within the Trinity. Father did not come before Son. From all eternity, the Father is generating the Son. The Son is being generated of the Father. And the Son stands before the Father as the express image of the Father, the one in whom the Father beholds Himself. The Father sees Himself in the Son. And the Holy Spirit causes this wonder to take place. So that the Father is breathing into the Son the breath of the Spirit. And the Son is breathing back to the Father the breath of the Spirit. And the Father and the Son then are able to know one another through the power and the wonder of the Spirit. In that lies the eternal covenant relation that exists among the three persons. All things are of the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. This fellowship is intimate. This fellowship is divine. Within this fellowship, all the work of the triune God takes place. So that when the catechism seemingly distinguishes that work by saying God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, God the Holy Ghost in our sanctification, we understand that the point here is not to divide the work of God, but to emphasize that the triune God carries out the aspects of that work in such a way that this is the one that takes the lead, or that's the one that takes the lead. Triune work with the Father taking the lead with regard to creation, the Son with regard to redemption, paying the price of our salvation. All the works of God, again, works of the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Now, how do we know this? Because God revealed it to us. Faith lays hold on the knowledge that God has made known. And that faith works knowledge and confidence in our hearts. So that we believe that God is triune. And God not only works in us the knowledge of that, but then the confidence. So that we embrace Him as God alone. Everything that we know about the existence of God comes from the Scriptures. The passage that we read here in 1 John 5 is one of the most clear that we can find. That God is one. You can't find a more clear passage regarding the truth of the Trinity. Yet it's not just this one passage on which the doctrine is based. Many passages throughout Scripture. From the very beginning, we have in Genesis, the emphasis on the plurality of God. Let us make man after our own image. And we have in the confessions, especially the Belgic Confession, in Article 9, which is quoted in the handout, a tracing through the biblical revelation concerning the Trinity. As God marvelously from the beginning demonstrated, as it says in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, let us make man. And then in Genesis 3, verse 22, we have further revelation and then God continues throughout the Scriptures to give the baptism formula. Go out, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. 
elaborating on the fact that the plurality is a plurality of three. At the same time, emphasizing the oneness of God. God is one and three. Trinity in unity. A prayerful study of the Bible then from Pentecost on has convicted the church that the Almighty God exists as a trinity of co-equal persons in the unity of the Godhead. This has been confessed by God's people from the very beginning to be the Word of God. And the doctrine of Trinity then as a matter of revelation is that which we embrace. We study the Scriptures. And as we study the Word of God, our desire is to know who is God. We want to confess God rightly. And we want to give Him the glory and the honor that is due His name. And God brings us then to that glorious confession concerning who He is and the mighty works He performs. Now, we're never going to fully comprehend Him because, again, God is incomprehensible. But the truth of the Trinity, though a mystery, is not a contradiction. It's not contradictory because we're saying God is three in a different way than God is one. If we said God is one being and three beings, that would be a contradiction. A mystery, but not a contradiction. But at the same time, we don't turn to human reason, but to the Word of God. So God reveals Himself to us in His Word in a manner that reveals how great and how glorious He is. God's revelation is through the power of the Spirit. As we noted, the Spirit moved men to write the words of God. And as the Spirit moved those men, God then directed them to an understanding concerning who He was, telling them about the majesty and the glory and the greatness of His works, telling about His very being, about the life that He lives. And God came down to earth to create all things, creating all things, revealing Himself as such, as Creator and Lord. He sent Jesus in the fullness of time to pay for our sin, to redeem us. And He sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in order to sanctify, to work in our hearts, to direct us more and more in holiness to God. A revelation that begins in the Old Testament becomes more and more clear throughout the ages and reveals then the wonder of God's love. Now, apart from God's Spirit, we would never believe it. God works faith. And God reveals, by that faith, the wonder of His being. Now, God does more than that. God reveals Himself to us as the living God. He is life. And the life that we live is His life, as He lives it in and through us by His Spirit. That's the confession that we are brought to. What is life? Life is energy expressed in activity. Life presupposes relationships that are harmonious. And so God, we say, is life. God is energy. And God is harmonious relationships. To live and to act in that relationship is God's work. One can't experience life in solitude. Life involves fellowship and communion. 
God is the implication of all energy. He is the source of all energy. There's no lack of power, no lack of energy, no lack of wisdom, no lack of righteousness within the Godhead. In God, there's no discord. There's no arguing. There's no confusion. There's no conflict. There's no disagreement. God is eternally in harmony with his own being. And there's a continual current then of divine life, divine energy, divine fellowship, divine love, divine joy that takes place within the Godhead among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friendship characterizes that life that they live. God's covenant life is a life of energy. It's a life of friendship. It's a life of love. It's not revealed in the Bible as a pact, an agreement, an alliance. It's revealed in the Bible as a living bond of life and friendship that takes place between the persons so that they enter into one another's life and enjoy communion and fellowship with each other. God is a God of wonder. And that's what the revelation concerning God reveals. The wonder of God. So that man stands in awe, redeemed man. This God, he alone is God. There's no one that can compare to him. He's outside of any kind of category that one can put together. And God gives faith so that we embrace him. In our worship, in our confession, we insist, I believe in God. I believe the revelation that God has given concerning who he is. Now the understanding of the regenerate child is not going to be immediately perfect in terms of all of the details of God and his glory and his greatness. There's going to be growth. There's going to be development. God makes use of means for that spiritual growth and development through the course of our lives. And he uses the chief means of grace, the preaching of the gospel. He uses prayer, uses a searching and studying of his word to grow his children in their understanding of the greatness of his glory. But they believe because Jehovah God gives that faith. And that faith embraces him alone as God. Again, we can try to prove God with so many philosophical arguments. We can try to use all kinds of different proofs to try to prove that there is a God. And those can be helpful in confirming faith, but they'll never be successful in working faith. God's work of grace in the heart alone will produce faith and belief with regard to God. And that's what the emphasis here of John is too. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Yes, you are born of God. That's not something that you've come up with yourself. That's evidence of the power of God's grace in your heart. As you now live out of that confession and you show forth the praise of God. Now beloved, this results then in a wondrous experience for us. Our God is a living God. He's not cold, indifferent, lifeless, abstract. He's a living, warm, communicating God. He's a God who's very concerned in your life and in my life. And He's working all things together for your good and for your salvation. 
This is what gives significance to the whole of history. Jehovah God wants you and me as his children to be received into his divine family. And so he's working the whole course of history with that goal to bring us into the fullness of the glory that awaits. Why is there a world? Why is there creation? Why did God make men and women? Why is there such a thing as marriage? Why is there sin in the world? Why are there so many trials that take place in the world? Why is there a Calvary, Protestant Reformed Church? These are questions that rise up in our minds. Why am I here? What value is there to my life? How can I be of any significance? We ask questions. We struggle. Why do we have Christian schools? Why do we sacrifice to train up our children in the way everlasting? Beloved, the answer to all these questions is Jehovah God is a triune God who enters into covenant with us. And he's using all of these things to bring us to the fullness of that life that is ours with him. And so everything, every part of life has significance. Nothing happens by chance. He's the one using all of these experiences in order to bring us into the fullness of that glory. And so everything we see, everything we experience is being used by God to bring his church into his family so that they might be glorified with his glory, that they might experience the highest blessedness of righteousness and holiness with him. Our God is performing this wonder work. And so in the glorious truth of the Trinity, we find the assurance of the blessedness of the glory that awaits us. And it's sure, because this God alone is God. There is no one that can compete. No one will frustrate his plans. Oh, the devil tries to do so, but already the devil's head has been crushed. Just as God enjoys perfect friendship and perfect fellowship within his own being, sharing one mind, one will, one glory, he is bringing every last one of his children into that blessed relationship. He created me. He created you. He redeemed me. He redeemed you. And he's sanctifying us in order to use all the experiences of our lives to bring us as his children into the glory of that perfect, that perfect covenant relationship in glory, in heaven. Now we're ready. We belong to him. This is his work, beloved. And all of grace, which he's performing of the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. God's a family God. Father and Son identify the persons and also distinguish them from each other. Father begetting the Son. Son being begotten of the Father. An eternal activity that is taking place within the Godhead. As such, the one outstanding aspect of that is fellowship and love, friendship. God is a family God. He's a God that himself knows family life. He's not a family God because he adopted us and took us into that family, but he already was a family God. And because he was a family God now, he took into his own family a people, 
creatures whom he created, whom he would redeem, and whom he would sanctify. Now, God is a family God by virtue of his own being and character. The Trinity is a family as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And into this relationship now, God takes a people. Now, we can say a number of things about God as a family. First of all, it's a relationship of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father in the Spirit. God is love. Secondly, it's a relationship of knowledge. The Father and the Son know one another with the most intimate form of knowledge. And they share that knowledge and they speak about that knowledge so that the internal communication between the Father and Son reflect that communicating. Let us make man, we read. God, within his own being, communicating in that knowledge of friendship and love. And thirdly, there's a cooperation then among the persons in the works that they take up. Friends work together, especially friends of one family. The fatherly God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is creating. That's Genesis 1 and 2. John 1, verse 3, and Psalm 104, verse 30, demonstrate that the Word and the Spirit are involved in creation. It's not something that the Father is doing on His own. Although it's Jesus Christ who died for our sins, Colossians 1.20 and Hebrews 9.14 make clear the Father and the Spirit also are active in that wonder work of redemption. It's the Spirit that indwells us as comforter and sanctifier. And yet, John 14, verse 23, and John 16 make clear it's the Father and the Son who pour out the Spirit. So that the Spirit is not working independent, but He comes from, He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Within the Trinity, God enjoys Himself. He experiences pleasure in the presence of His being. The Son always in the presence of the Father. The Father in the presence of the Son. Intimately delighting in one another, according to John 1, verses 1 through 18. And that intimacy is the intimacy now that God extends outside of the Trinity with His people. Not only do Father and Son embrace one another, but they also enter into one another's lives. They dwell with one another, and now they dwell within us. So that Almighty God enters into friendship with a people outside of Himself in order that He might bring them into the joy and wonder of His own covenant life. And what is the role of the Spirit, as we noted this morning? The Spirit, as the third person, is the one who is actively at work as the bond of love between the Father and the Son. He's the one whom they send as sanctifier and as the one who convicts of sin and drives us to the cross and causes us to see our need for Christ. The Spirit is the personal bond of love between the Father and the Son as Proverbs 8, verse 30 points out. The fellowship that God enjoys within His own being is shed abroad. It's spread outside of His being with those whom He regenerates. So that the Holy Spirit brings us now into intimate 
communion with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us and giving us to know, I'm not my own. I belong. And that's the idea of a family. Belonging. I belong. I have an identity. I'm not alone. I'm not a cast off. I belong. And the Holy Spirit works the wonder by which believers are united to Christ as the head of the church so intimately that Christ lives and dwells within us by His Spirit. That the life that we live is not our own life. It's the life of Christ now that's from above. So that the life that we live corresponds now with the life of the Trinity. It's a life of communicating with one another, talking with one another, talking with God, delighting in God, hearing God speak to us through His Word, responding to Him in prayer. It's a delighting in one another. We delight in God. We desire to be with Him. We want to worship Him. We want to show forth His praise. We don't want to be separate from Him. To live apart from God is death. Our delight and our desire is to live in fellowship and communion with Him. Seeking God and seeking that fellowship involves sacrifice. It involves of us saying no to our own desires, our own passions. It involves submission. It involves service. And there's an enjoyment then that God works among members of that body so that we know that love, we live in the joy of that fellowship and life, and we serve one another in love. The Holy Spirit enabling that fellowship, that communion, that life within the church. Uniting us to Christ, the head of the church, strengthening us in our relations one with another, and leading us to the fullness of that life that will be ours with God in heavenly bliss. Beloved, this is the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a marvelous doctrine. The Trinity determines the nature of God's covenant. The doctrine of the Trinity causes the covenant to be filled with life, fellowship, and love so that the covenant is not merely a cold pact, an agreement. It's a relationship of friendship and love. And it's grounded in the life of the triune God. I believe in God. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the faith that God works in our hearts. And God, as a glorious God, makes His abode in our hearts for the fullness of His glory and His own joy. That He brings us into that spirit-filled life is a wonder of grace. This, beloved, is our confession. And this is the source of our covenant friendship with one another. This serves as the basis of the life that we live within our marriages. We love because God first loved us. What's the nature of that love? It's patterned after the love of God as we seek to reflect that love in our relationships. All that we experience and all that we know flows out of the wonder of God. God is love. And now He's worked that love in my heart by which I confess it and I know Him as my Lord and as my God. And the power of grace is such that it directs us then to live in love by the power of the Spirit. Longing for the day when God will 
fully unite his church, casting away all sin once and for all in order to bring us into his family forever. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us in the joy and the wonder of that covenant life that is ours with thee. We stutter and we stammer a few words about thy triune being. But Lord, we stand in awe as we read thy word and as we study it. We are filled with amazement. Our God is a great and glorious God. Our God is a God who cannot fully be comprehended in human terms. But we love Thee, and we delight in Thee, and we pray for the grace by which we might live unto Thee. Amen.